Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. I just want to start by kind of just, I say refreshing, but recapping on our last year, because I think we will all kind of confess to having moments of finding this last year a quietly brutal one on our emotions. I think all of us at points, we've all kind of walked through this ebb and flow of feeling okay and then actually feeling fairly empty. I know I've had my own moments of walking through seasons and just thinking I I don't get the meaning of what is happening and I don't know if I've got enough emotional inward energy to really keep going. Am I am I connecting here? Is anyone thank you Mandy. We we've had this and I think some of us have had this it's almost quietly crept up on us that that we find ourselves without really realizing it in a place where we feel inwardly empty and struggling to find meaning in what we used to do that we used to do things quite happily and now for whatever reason the last 18 months have somehow gutted some of the meaning of what we were doing some of us we've had jobs that have changed we've our circumstances have changed and almost the, the stopping of all the busyness has almost taken away some of the layers of what probably uh, protected us from the knowledge that actually there was less inside our hearts than we actually thought. That the working, the commuting, the busyness, etc. was masking over the fact that actually inwardly there was a real hunger inside our heart. One writer called Adam Grant, he writes in the New York Times and this article really helped me articulate what I felt and feel sometimes, and I don't know, it might help you. He says this, he was talking with friends at the beginning of lockdown, and he was talking about how they were feeling, and he says it wasn't burnout, because we still had energy. He said it wasn't depression, because we didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. It turns out there's a name for that, languishing. He says languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. Languishing. And he says it's not depression, it's not like you can't get out of bed, but it's certainly not that you're flourishing in your life. It's like this middle place of kind of this emptiness, he says, and stagnation. And the question for us, I think when we feel like in those moments, is how do we find inner strength? How do we find an, 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 a not a stagnation, an energy to move forward with our life? How do we find something that will fill our hearts up? And this is where we get Jesus in this, in this moment. Because Jesus, when we have him in John 4 here, he's physically exhausted. We find him in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. The disciples ask him to stop outside of this town called Sychar at a well. They ask him to stop where he is and they're going to go get the food. So physically exhausted he is. And he's also in this moment on the run from persecution from the religious leaders of the day who are wanting now to try him already in his ministry for blasphemy. So you imagine the emotional turmoil. You know, if you have one person who's upset with you, you know the kind of like inward turmoil. Imagine a whole people group who have the power to kill you and he is now in Sychar because he is travelling away from them. He is emotionally and physically depleted and empty in this moment, sat alone by a well in the middle of the day. And Jesus talks about an inner strength, an inner food that sustains him even during his exhaustions. 
So let me just get this clear. What I'm not talking about finding the best you tomorrow that you're full of vigor and energy and health and you're doing the best thing you ever imagined in your life and it's now suddenly Instagram worthy. I'm not talking about that because what Jesus says is he found an inner strength in the middle of his exhaustion and depletion. Does that make sense? We're talking about in the moments when you actually feel like you have nothing else, when there is no hope for the next day. In that moment, Jesus says there is a food that can sustain your soul. And so we're just going to recap here and just follow what Jesus says to the disciples and then learn hopefully what he knew so that we can have this same kind of strength. So the moment has come. Jesus has been in the, in, in the middle of the day in this world. This woman has come. He's by himself. He gets into a conversation. He prophesies into her life. She's totally undone. This conversation ensues and he asks her to trust him because he has the, waters of living, the, the, the rivers of living water. And she believes that he is the Messiah. Her life is turned upside down. She runs back into town to tell other people that she's just met the hoped one, the Messiah. And in this moment, while Jesus sat there alone, the disciples come back with the food that they just bought for Jesus. And so you catch this moment up and they say to him, Rabbi, eat. Like, we've got the food. Please come eat your lunch now. And then he says this in verse 32. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I have to confess, I read that verse for many years, like with Jesus being a slightly pompous kind of high-minded religious leader, like, oh, you bought me lunch, that's very nice, but you don't understand that I'm living on a higher plane than you, and I don't need small, petty things like lunch, because my food is in another place. And I honestly read it like this kind of high-minded vicar, like, aha, I don't need these worldly things. But I think what's going on when you read the story, you just like imagine yourself in the moment. There's Jesus, back against the world maybe, sat on the floor, exhausted, having just had this conversation with this woman, I think content with this smile on his face, contemplating what has just happened. And the disciples say, here, Jesus, please have some food now. And he realizes there's a moment because he's just been contemplating the conversation he's just had. And he says, guys, we will eat. But I need to tell you that there is another type of food that I don't think you know about yet and I would love to talk to you about. He's saying there's something deeper and better. We'll get to lunch in a minute, but there is something better and I want to tell you about this spiritual food. And the disciples, being the quick-witted souls that they are, said this, has anyone bought him something to eat? He's like, did you? Like, did he get like a, a cheeky delivery while we weren't here? Like, has he had something in his backpack the whole time? What's been going on? And he says this, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's saying, look, that lunch that you've got, that does something for your soul. It sustains you and it energizes you. And it's an enjoyable thing to eat food for your body. He says, for me, there is something that is actually filling up my soul in this moment of persecution and physical exhaustion. For me to do the will of the Father is actually food for my soul. What that food is going to do to your body, doing the will of God, does for my soul. And there is an invitation here to enjoy the same thing. Food is good, amen? I mean, and we sometimes have, that was a good amen, like, okay. But we sometimes have an awkward relationship with food, and we get that, especially in our society, and if you're trying to lose some, like, lockdown weight and those kind of things, you're like, you might feel a bit awkward around food, but generally, we love food. It sustains us, doesn't it? It gives us energy. Sometimes you've had those moments where you've been utterly exhausted or whatever, 
and you have a coffee and a snack and suddenly you're like, okay, for the rest of the afternoon, I'm good to go. It picks you up and it sustains you. And food is just delicious, isn't it? I mean, you just think about spaghetti bolognese, tiramisu, wine, anything Italian, basically I was preparing this, I was like, I think I'm Italian. Like anything Italian is basically amazing when it comes to food. But you've got like paella, fish and chips, apple crumble, bibimbap, shout out to the Koreans. Like there is a lot of tasty food out there for us to, and Jesus said there is a food that will sustain you and bring you joy that is beyond the physical food, that is doing the will of God. So Psalm 74 says this, Psalm 73, sorry, says, my flesh and my heart may fail, so my strength may may give out. I may feel like I'm languishing, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God will sustain me. Psalm 63 in the moment where he's being, he's by himself, in a moment where he's struggling, I would, if David had the word languishing, he would use the same thing. He, he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Hallelujah. And my mouth will praise you, my joyful lips, when I remember you upon my bed. Jesus has his priorities right. He puts his soul first and his body second because he knows if his soul is full, then whether his body is doing well or not, he will find joy and sustenance to carry on. But he may have his soul empty, and if his body is doing well, he still may not have the energy to carry on. If you have that moment, you think, I'm physically well, everything about me physically is fine, but there is something in my heart I just cannot carry on. So Jesus knows that the priority is inner life first, outer body second. And there is this invitation, he says, to do the will of God. He says, my food is to do the will of him, that is the Father who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Which immediately, I think, would flag up a question for us. How do we know we're doing the will of God? Have you ever asked that question? I, I would guarantee you've asked that question in your mind at some point. Do I know that what I'm doing right now is the will of my Father in heaven? Ever ask that question? You're like, is this job what God really wants me to be doing? Should I be doing something else? Is this person someone I should be dating? Is this person someone I should be marrying? Should we have kids? Should we have a second one? Should we have a third one? For some of you, should we have a fourth one? I don't know why, but you ask those kind of questions. You ask, and where should I live? What kind of house should we live in? Is this God's will for my life? And we ask those kind of questions. And this kind of Bible passage could be like a real paralyzing Bible verse. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So if I'm doing the will of him who sent me, then I get spiritual food in a life. But what if I'm walking slightly outside of his will then? You get... So I think we need to think about God's will in, 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 in a layered fashion in like primary and secondary terms. There is a primary call, the prime will of God is that we come to love him with our heart, soul, mind and body. Everything we have, we say, I am yours, Jesus. That we give thanks to him, that we walk in holiness, that we do good, that we share the good news. Everything that this Bible talks about is the revealed, explicit will of God. So whenever you read a verse, even like this, to do the will of the Father, our first instinct should be, that is your will for my life that I want to obey. I want to follow what you have told me. It is this calling to God himself. The primary will of God is that we are in relationship with him. 
And then there's this secondary aspect, which is about the type of person you marry, the kind of place you live in, the job that you're doing, the career path that you go on. Does that make sense? So it's this aspect, walking in relationship with God, and then actually how do you work that out in your 70 or 80 years that you might have here on earth? What country might you live in? All those kind of questions. And what happens sometimes for Christians, if you're a Christian here, is that we get the primary calling and the secondary calling under the will of God kind of inversed. That we think, well, I've got my relationship with God, tick. Like, he loves me, I love him, I go to church, tick, I'm a Christian. And then we kind of think, I'll put that to one side, and now the big aim of my life is to figure out who to date, who to marry, what my job should be, what university I should go to, etc, etc. And what occupies all of our time and our thinking and our prayers is, what is next to me, God? What should I do with my life? Etc, etc. And actually, the, the right way round is the other way round, because this Bible has a surprisingly little amount to say about who you should marry, what kind of job you should do, what kind of place you should live in, what country you should live in. It's, there's very scant information on that. But there are a lot of pages of how to love God, to be in relationship with him, how to glorify him. You hear what I'm saying? So our priorities have to be the right way around. And what Jesus, I think, is saying is that when you're you're focused on the prime will of God for, for you to know him and for him to pour out his grace upon your life, when you are giving yourself to the explicit revealed will of God in the Bible then all the other things that feel big actually begin to fall into place. And you can find spiritual food when your life seems to be going well and when you're languishing. That if you think you're doing an important job or you think your your life is not very important right now, there is actually a food and a sustenance for you when you give yourself to the primary will of God to know him. You can find yourself doing anything. There was Brother Lawrence, some of you know, who was not just a monk, he was lower than a monk. He was the guy who helped clean the kitchens in the monastery for the monks. And he said he would practice the presence of God and that he would feel the delight of God while he was cleaning ovens. That's him saying, I know that right now I'm in the will of my Father. And I sense his pleasure over my life. Whether I'm preaching to a thousand or cleaning an oven, I sense his pleasure and there is spiritual food for me right now to be had. So this is not about trying to figure out the circumstances of your life. It's exactly the opposite. And we as a church need to get our concerns correct. And actually what we do, we give ourselves, like Jesus did, to the will of the Father. Everything else begins to make sense because you can find joy in the smallest of things. And what you think, oh, if I change this circumstance, then I'll find that kind of, whatever that joy looks like over there. No, no, you say, actually, I'll find my joy right here, where I am. So what I want to do is just look at Jesus, learn from him, and then make an invitation. And I think there are at least three things here that we can learn from Jesus. So the first thing is this. Jesus, when he was on earth, He lived for an audience of one. He lived just for his father. That, yeah, he had many people that he was dialoguing with and training and discipling and there were crowds and there was persecutions and there was preaching to thousands upon thousands upon thousands. But Jesus says 
that I do the will of him who sent me. It says, my primary focus is not to do your will, not to run from persecution, but to look to my Father in heaven and to do his will. His whole life was lived before an audience of one, his Father in heaven. At least 15 times in John, he speaks about just doing the will of him who sent him. He says, in all of the hustle and bustle of his life, and his life was hectic, busy. In all of his life, there was one primary focus, there was one audience, as he looked out upon his life, it was God his Father. I'm doing his will. I'm looking, what is he saying? I want to say that. What is he doing? I want to do that. Whose applause am I looking to? I'm looking to my Father's applause. Os Guinness wrote a book called The Call, and I would, I would highly recommend it. If you're wrestling with how do you find meaning in life, I recommend this book, just simply called The Call. And he says this, most of us, whether, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The, qu- the question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. So for some, it's quite easy. Politicians, obviously, do it for the populace. Like, they've got to get their votes. If you're a pop star, you've got your fans. If you're an actor, you've got your critics in the box office. If you're an employee, you've got a boss. But also, you might be working in your workplace, but actually your real audience might be your friends or your peers and their opinion of what you are doing. For many people, if your parents have had high expectations of you, you live with this sense that you are always doing your life before the eyes of your parents. That there is always a sense which, am I living up to their expectations? You could be a thousand miles away from them, but yet the audience of your life is still actually, deep down, really, your mum and dad. Because you want to please them. The question to get to the bottom of this is, is, whose opinion do you often think about? Who do you often think about in your life? Are they happy with me right now? Do you think, are they being pleased with me? Am I walking in their approval? It will tell you probably who is your audience in your life. And Jesus says, my audience is God, my Father. And there is an invitation for us to step back and to look up to God our Father and say, actually, I want to turn from the audiences of my life, my parents, my spouse, my boss, my colleagues, whoever, my peers, whoever it might be, because their expectations of you will crush you. You will never find joy if you have multiple audiences you are trying to please. That expectation will crush your joy and any inward strength. It will leave you empty of strength because you won't be able to live up to all of the standards all of the time. But when you look to God your Father and you find this smile over your life and a God who says, I am well pleased with you, my son, my daughter, You are my chosen one. You are part of my family. I love you. If we live much under the smiles of our Father, whatever we are doing, we will find an inner strength to carry on. God sent me. God favours me. God smiles over my life. God will judge me. I won't stand before my boss. I won't stand before my friends. I won't stand before Toria. I won't stand before my children. I will stand before God my Father and he is already beaming with this overflowing, joy-filled, infinite smile over my life. So I can be happy. Amen? Amen. And it's temptation all the time. I'm tempted for you. I mean, you are literally my audience right now, but... (laughs) 
I'm, I'm, I, as a pastor, I'm, I am tempted to take your approval of me as, as my inner well-being. So on a Monday, like, did things go well? Did people like the sermon? Was there feedback? All of those questions. And if I live with that, I will constantly be on this merry-go-round of being up and down, crushed, happy, crushed, happy, crushed, happy, because I didn't quite get it. But if I know I just do the will of my Father, whatever he's asked me to do, there is an infinite beam over my life in a strength. So that's the first thing. We live for an audience of one. The second thing is this. Jesus saw the world as a harvest. He says this in verse, in, um, verse 35. He says, do not say... So he switches the metaphor. He says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. So he talks about if you sow the fields, and then four months later you go, and then you come back, you reap your harvest. He says, no, don't say that. There's an urgency. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. He talks about life and doing life and the sending on mission in terms of this harvest field analogy. Because when Jesus looks out across the world and he looks into the town of Sychar and he has this moment with this woman by the well and he's fleeing from Jerusalem, everywhere he looks, he doesn't see need, trial, trauma, opportunities, jobs, relationships. What he sees is harvest fields. He sees people who are in need of hope. People who are in need of joy. People who are in need of having their inner life filled and strengthened by the pleasure of God over their life. He sees the world as a harvest field. Um, hands up, because I did this once, like a couple of years ago, and I got these blank faces. Hands up who's seen The Matrix? Please. Oh, good. Like, I used this... Yeah, thanks, Tom. Right, two hands. I used this analogy like two years ago, and these like 20-year-olds were looking at me like, I've never heard of it. It's how that film when that guy went backwards like that. I was like, I can't believe... You have not been so cultured, right? But the, the Matrix, right? There's this moment where Neo, he suddenly, he sees the Matrix. Well, up to this point, he thought it was reality, right? And there's that moment where suddenly he sees it and it's just all that green code. And it's just suddenly he gets it. He sees the reality of what is going on. For us, that has to happen in our life with the world. We cannot just look at life through the lens of LinkedIn and think life is just about job opportunities. What's my next job? What's my next promotion? What's my next... We can't look at it through the lens of Instagram, like, what's my next pleasure? What's my next experience? Where's my next trip happening? What's my next thing? We can't look at it through the lens of relationships. What's my next relationship? Who am I going to date? Etc. Etc. We can't look all of those things are good and valid and real. We have to have our eyes turned on to see the fact that beyond all of these things, the deeper reality is London is a harvest field of men and women who are needy for hope and joy and courage and the favour of God over their life. They are needy to hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins and was raised to vindicate all of his life and then pour out blessings over their life. We need to see London as opportunities to share this good news. So when Jesus, he sat down by this well, he wasn't thinking, I'm exhausted, I need food, I'm switching off until, no, he had his matrix eyes on, Holy Spirit eyes, and he saw, no, this, this is a harvest moment. This woman needs to hear about the hope that is found in me. And if we find ourselves viewing life like that, we won't be concerned about the secondary matters of jobs and etc., etc. That will sort itself out. 
the wisdom, walking with friends, listening to God, that will sort itself out. But if you can, wherever you are right now, see the world as Jesus saw it, this is the harvest field, and you will find an inner satisfaction. Who knows the joy of when, if you're a Christian, you've just shared Jesus with someone. You've just got to share, like the smallest bit of your relationship with Jesus. You're like, I've just got to pass this little bit on and say, I found hope in him. I go to church. He's amazing. I'd love you to find out more. And how you leave those kind of conversations, what, fizzing with excitement and joy, don't you? Because you have touched the fact that the world is a harvest field. You have just touched reality. That is what people need. And you have experienced some of that food that fills you when you do the will of God. So that's the second thing. We need to see the world as a harvest. And thirdly, we need to know that we're each just a bit part. Excuse the film analogies today, but I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. And I'm sure most of you, and I can use it because I think most of you have seen Lord of the Rings but, you know, Lord of the Rings, there's all these different characters, if you don't know, there's like the men, there's the dwarves, there's the Ents, uh, who else is there? There's the elves, there's the hobbits, yeah, exactly, there's all these characters. I love that this has been the most animated moment, oh, you know, Lord of the Rings. But there's all these characters, and this is like confession time, when I'm watching it, I mean, I'm always inspired, because I think part of the reason I love it is just inspires me to be on adventure, to be courageous, to do something that matters in life, to give myself for something that actually is going to last beyond me. And when I'm watching it, the, the, the people that I want to be, I want to be Aragorn. Right? It's just like, I, I want to be Aragorn, you know, the true king, who at the end of the day was revealed and knighted. Like the leader, the strong one who led them into battle in that moment where they, see, they, they forge forward onto the battle lines at Mordor and he leads the charge. Everything in me says, I want to be Aragorn. Or maybe Legolas, because he's so cool that he can like surf his own bow while killing orcs and land with such like a gymnast, you know. Or maybe, but I, I imagine myself as like in the center. The reality is, probably if I got to star in Lord of the Rings, I would be one of those fat hobbits that you saw, like for one and a half seconds, waving at Frodo while he went on an adventure. I would, I would be one of the bit parts that if I was to show my mum, I'd be like, look, 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 if you pause it just enough right here, you can see me in the background, that's the top of my hair, can you see me? I'm actually in it. I want to think that I'm the center, but actually I just have a bit part to play. Which is what Jesus is getting at here, because he, said, he talks about sowers and reapers. He says, only one reaps and receiving, and receiving wages for eternal life, so the, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together, but they do have different jobs. One sows, he says, and another reaps. So the sower might say, no, I want to sow Jesus, and I want to be there in four months' time, because I want to harvest, and I want to be the one walking back into town, you know, the glory shot carrying all of the harvest. I want the whole thing. But I don't want to be a bit part player. And then the reaper might say, well, I don't want to just be the reaper. Like, I want to be there at the beginning. I was imagining like some of the, you know, the football players, England football players, who like, got brought on at the very end. I imagine for them, they're like, no, I want to be right there at the beginning. I all this kind of... But the reality is, if we are able to step back out of the center of our own story and be on the sidelines and be happy to play a bit part in the bigger story with Jesus at the center, with Jesus as the hero, with Jesus as the savior, with Jesus as the one we worship. If we can find ourselves there, then we will find inner strength for our souls because we will not be quibbling 
around the few years that we have doing this or that job, slightly different title, slightly different position, slightly different place of work. We won't be quibbling about that because I'm like, it's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. We need to find an ability to be a bit part player. So in all of this, there is an invitation. It's implicit in the words of Christ because this is a moment of teaching. He's trying to like unveil something to us. Because the reality is, we do languish. I languish. You languish. The, the reality is, there are moments where we do feel empty and without sustenance. We do struggle to sense the smiles of God over our life. We don't feel like there's food coming down into our souls. And so there is an invitation for us to come and look and go to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have the only man who has ever lived, who has lived completely the will of God. The only man who is from beginning to the end of his life, with every flicker of ambition, with every thought that has come through his mind, with every word, action and deed, with everything that he's ever done. He's the only one completely who has lived fully under the will of his father and has lived in every single moment, whether as a carpenter, whether preaching to thousands, whether being crucified, has lived with an inner strength that has enabled him to keep going in his life. So you and I, we need to go to Jesus, who is the bread of life, who brings sustenance, that if we will come to him, if we will receive from him, if we will say, I will only live for you, if if we can do that, there is a, a strength. Because we find Jesus at the beginning of his life, and we're told he was lost at one point, his mom and dad were looking for him, he was in the temple, and he says, you should have known I'm about my father's business. He lived for around 20 years as a carpenter. And we don't know really anything about those years. But from the scriptures and what we know about Jesus, there would be no sense that he lived those years thinking, I wish I was doing something more important with my life. Imagine the frustrations working with his tools, dealing with customers, delivering products, etc. Under the will of his father. Experience sustenance and joy. Enjoying making carpentry and then at the right time stepping into ministry doing the will of his father for an audience of one and we find even as he goes to the cross and he finds himself knowing that this is the will of the father struggling to go there and in the garden of Gethsemane when we find him he has his eyes set on the cross he knows this is the will of God but even Christ he struggles with this and he prays if it is your will may it not be so but he says even so nevertheless he says your will be done not my will he finally and utterly submits his will to his father's will and finds himself crucified on a cross taking on all of our emptiness all of the the, the stagnation in your life all of the sin and shame in his own body and in his final breaths what does he say it is finished and that's not Jesus saying I failed if only things had gone better for me if only they hadn't misunderstood me that's Jesus saying, everything you asked of me, Jesus, of oh, Father, I've done. I have completed every inch of the work that you had for me, and it is finished. He says, that's my food, to complete the work, to accomplish it, he says. And he says these words, and I close with this in John 6. What was the will of God for Jesus? Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, 
I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. After this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So are you empty today? Go to Jesus. You will not be lost. He's completed the work of the Father. You will be held and raised up on the last day. Are you languishing? Go to Jesus, the bread of life. Are you empty? Go to Jesus. He is the one who will fill you up from the inside out. Let us go to him. Amen. Let's pray together. If the band can come back up. Let me just invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And if you're not a Christian here today, and you're thinking, this all sounds interesting or maybe not interesting, but you think you're on the outside of this, there is an opportunity to have your soul filled. Jesus talks about himself as the bread of life. And there is an opportunity for you to eat this bread that is beyond the physical, that touches the bottom of your inner life. And it's found in Jesus. There is an invitation to pray, to talk to Jesus and, and say, if you're real, please, would you come and fill my life right now? I am needy. I have wronged you. Would you come? And if you are a Christian, this is the moment now where we, we bring our hearts to Jesus. Imagine these disciples coming to Jesus, seeing him sat on the floor back against the well with his happy, contented face, knowing that there is something in Jesus that they lack. And if there's anything you know right now and you say, I lack, there is stagnation. There is a lack of meaning. There is emptiness right now. I am hungering. Lift your heart to Jesus, the bread of life. And Father, I pray for all of us right now. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, draw us to your Son, knowing that when we come to your Son, we will never be cast out, that Jesus does not lose us, that Jesus, in his righteousness, allows us to be adopted into your family that we might experience the many smiles that you have over us and that we might be raised up on the last day. Fill us, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we're going to close.